The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 9, 19-27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an unperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, flip open your app. We have a Sacred City app. If you have an Android or an iPhone, you can find us there. You can find our scripture there. We've also got some Bibles in the back. We read from the ESV version. You can find that. And uh, let's go ahead and jump in. This morning, we are tackling a section of scripture that has been notoriously misinterpreted and has caused many people to miss out on the life-changing joy that the gospel brings to believers. There's no doubt that in this section of scripture, the Apostle Paul lays out the necessity for self-control in the life of a Christian. Okay? Self-control. In Galatians, Paul tells us that self-control is actually a fruit of the Spirit. So I doubt that any of us are surprised when Paul says Christians need self-control, right? Christians need self-control. I doubt anybody's too shocked about that. But the problem arises when we misunderstand the why and the what for of self-control. Why do we need to have self-control and what is it there for? What is self-control for? Nearly every single religion in the world teaches self-control or self-mastery. But every other religion in the world uses self-control like this. Listen. Every other religion uses self-control like this. Self-control is a matter of the will. You must choose to deny yourself. You must choose to change. You must choose the higher path. In other religions, the will, the the chooser in us is the dominant mechanism for self-control. And what is the motivation for self-control? What is the why for self-control in other religions? In nearly every other religion, the motivation is to be accepted. If you can will yourself to change, if you can forcefully apply your will to your behavior and get yourself under control, right? Change the language. You can change the outward behavior. You can look different, act different, be different, be better. Then God, whatever God, will accept you. So self-control is a matter of the will. Choose to change. 
change, and then God or the gods will accept you. So the fundamental motivation for most religions is will to do good, do good, and God will approve of you. And when people read this passage without studying it, or knowing Paul and what he's written thus far in the book and in other places in the New Testament, a person could easily read this text and think that Christianity is no different. Run the race. Practice self-control. Run to win. Many people misinterpret these verses to mean just that. Work hard. Have self-control so that you will be saved. I'm going to show you today that that is not what Paul is teaching at all. And that type of self-control leads people into a cold, lifeless religion that actually, listen, it looks like self-control, but it actually self-destructs down the line. So it gives you self-control, that religious, cold, moralistic, apply the will to yourself, makes you self-controlled in one area, but then your self-control always self-destructs in another area. So today we're going to be talking, clearly, about self-control. What is it? What is it for? And how do I get it? First, what is self-control? Self-control is to be in control of one's desires. Now, you don't have to spend very long on planet Earth to discover that one of mankind's greatest problems is our failure to control our desires, right? From the obvious, like drugs and gambling and eating disorders, right? To things on the lighter side, like waking up in the morning. For some people, that's incredibly difficult, right? Or working out. Oh, no. Or this ain't even, you know, this ain't even January. Get off of that working out stuff. Or losing your temper. Losing your temper at work. Losing your temper with the kids. These are self-control problems. See, you know you have a self-control problem when you're doing something that you desperately want to stop, but you can't. See, it's not just drug addicts and alcoholics. You're getting angry and you're yelling at your kids. You're eating too much. You're lying. Why can't I stop that? You don't like it, but you can't stop. See, that's a self-control problem. So all of us, I hopefully can, we, can, we can admit this, all of us struggle with a self-control problem at some level. Whether it's not being able to deny a German chocolate cake, right? Or whether it's not being able to work out, even though we know we need to or whether it's lying or cheating or stealing, whatever it is, we all, I think, have a self-control problem. And in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, the guy who's writing this, he says that even he struggled with self-control. He says, what I want to do, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do those. See, trying to control our desires is like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. Have you ever done that? Right? Trying to sit, everything you can do to try to keep that thing underwater. But eventually you get tired, right? Eventually you get bored. Eventually, and it just comes back up. 
See, that's what self-control's like. I got my anger under control, and then the kids, <laughs> right? There it was. I thought I was doing a good job with the self-control thing. It's like trying to keep a beach ball underwater. See, self-control is the vigorous control of our appetites and our desires, our passions. That's what it is. Now, what is self-control for? See, we said in other religions, self-control is to get acceptance or favor from God. But what is it in Christianity if Christianity is different? Well, let's look at our text this morning. We're in verse 19. Well, we can start. Actually, I'm just going to speak about this. You've already probably noticed we've got some athletic metaphors going on, right? Runners running, athletes practicing strict self-control. Paul has abruptly switched metaphors on us. In the first half of the chapter, Paul used the metaphor of a soldier, a vintner, a shepherd, a temple worker, and even cited some Old Testament law. He, and now Paul's going after the jocks here, okay? Paul's actually practicing the principle that he's been writing about, being all things to all people. He uses different metaphors and illustrations to teach different types of people. He used a reference from the law for the Jew. He used agricultural references for those in the ag business. And now he turns to the athletes and the spectators of the Isthmian games, which were being held in the city of Corinth. Now, what are the Isthmian games? The Isthmian games were second only to the Olympic games at the time. And they were held every two years, the off years. There was no, Olympic, or there was no winter Olympics at the time. So the Isthmian games kind of took the place of the winter games that we have. And they consisted of several events. What was in the Isthmian Games? Similar events that are in the Olympics today. There were track and field events. There were chariot races. Those would be cool to watch. Uh, there was wrestling. There was boxing. And there was uh, like a pancreation. It's basically mixed martial arts. There was even music and poetry. If that, you know, tickles your fancy, right? If you get tired of watching people fight to the death over here, and go get soothed by some good music and poetry over on this side. So Paul, he uses this common cultural event to teach about self-control. He says, Christians need self-control for the same reasons, listen, for the same reasons athletes need self-control. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run. Now that actually word race is actually stadium. It actually says, do you not know in the stadium or think about the Colosseum? In the Colosseum, all the runners run. But look what he's saying. But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. See, everyone runs, but only one wins. So run to win. That's what Paul's saying. Self-control is for winning. Winning. Now, verse 25. Let's keep reading before I jump into that a little bit anymore because this is going to expand on it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, that word athlete is actually the Greek word, uh, if I can say it, agonizomai, agonizomai. You can hear what, what it sounds like, right? Agonize. 
It's literally the word for wrestler. Okay? So he's talking about every wrestler, every mixed martial art, every fighter, every person like that exercises strict self-control in order to win. Now, at this time, the athletes who participated in the Isthmian Games, they actually had to sign a contract. They'd have to sign a contract that said, that would basically say, I have no off-season. I will... um, I will abide by this strict regimen for 10 months. I must undergo 10 months of training before the Isthmian Games. It's much like we send our athletes for the Olympics. We send them off to Olympic training centers. We want to make sure that they're not at home eating that German chocolate cake, right? Well, I qualified. I'm just hoping to wing it when I get there, right? You got this swimmer. He gets up there and he's got a belly out to here and you're like, oh no, this is not going to go well for us this year, right? Unless he's on, (laughs) never mind, I'm not going to go there. All right, so they had to go under, undergo 10 months of strict training. They had to uh, have a complete a regimented uh, training schedule of diet, of working out, of weightlifting. You couldn't just eat pizza every day and show up and be game ready, right? It was only those who completed this 10 months of strict training out of the year, only those who were allowed into the stadium, and then out of the stadium, only one, he says, wins, right? And what they, he says, they win what? A perishable wreath. Now, these days, you know, we get gold, our Olympics, they get gold medals, right? Back in that day, back in the day here, they literally got a wreath made of pine and celery. So if you're hungry, at least the thing is you could eat it, I guess, right? At least now guys can put their, their Olympic medals on eBay and make 60, 70 grand, Right? But there, it's a perishable wreath. That's what they, they were competing to win that prize. So Paul is saying here, self-control, we already know what, what it is it, the ability to control your desires in all areas of your life. What's it for? It's for winning. That's what it's for. Self-control is for winning. But now, here's the question we should ask ourselves. What is the Christian trying to win? Is it our acceptance from God? Like other religions, we're trying to win God's favor. So we're working really hard and we're practicing self-control so that God will look down on us and go, you're good. You have my favor. You're accepted. Or like other world religions that say, oh, I see you working really hard. I see your strict self-control. I will bless your crops or I will bless your women with fertility or all the other gods. Is that what the Christian is that, the way, is that what the Christian's trying to win? I've heard it preached this way many times. God doesn't like slow people, right? Win, run to win. Only winners make the kingdom. Only winners win salvation. I've heard it preached this way many times, and that's absolutely not what Paul is teaching, and that's absolutely the opposite of the gospel. They're dead wrong. Now, to prove that to you, I'm not just going to give you my opinion. I want you to go to the text. Let's look at verse 19. Let's take a look here. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I've made my servant to all that I might, somebody say it, win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might Win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win 
those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win or save some. So what is Paul wanting to win? What is he wanting us to run to win? Verse 19 to 22, Paul says that his desire is to win other people. He says it four different times, referring to four different types of people. He says he wants to win Jews. He says he wants to win moralistic people. He wants to win pagans and secularists. He wants to win the weak, the people that the culture calls outcasts and marginalized, the poor and the powerless. And if we remember from last week, Paul has, last week, Paul lit the fuse on a gospel bomb and he dropped the gospel, the good news, eight times in those few short verses. So Paul is telling the Corinthians and us, you need self-control. Like the wrestler has self-control because there are people who need to be one to Jesus with the gospel. Self-control is for winning people with the gospel. So self-control is about others, not necessarily about me. Now this is clear. Again, look at verse 23. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Now what is he talking about? I do it all. Listen to this. Paul, nobody wants to be like Paul. I'm just going to tell you that. Paul's job description is one of the worst ones in, in, the, in the whole Bible. Okay? Paul was beaten within an inch of his life several times. Paul had to be snuck out of cities in, in baskets, all right? Paul was beaten, thrown outside the gates, left for dead. Paul was then shipwrecked, okay? He was shipwrecked, and then not only shipwrecked, but then he was, you know, the whole boat, you know, gets destroyed. He gets on an island, and while he's shipwrecked, you gotta be, you gotta be kind of hating your life right now. Like, you're going through your head like, I'm preaching the gospel, I'm getting crap beat out of me on a weekly basis. Like, this is not going well for me. I don't have a wife, right? His, his wife, more, more than likely, he was a widower, more than, likely, more than likely his wife had died. He's having a rough life, and now you're thinking, and now I'm swimming for sure. My boat can't even make it where it's supposed to go. And then he gets on the island, he's like, well, I'm gonna make a fire, right? He goes to make a fire, he picks up some, some sticks. Do we know what happens? Snake pops out of it, he's snake bitten. Now, to me, this automatically goes to one of the greatest movies of all time, Dumb and Dumber. That's immediately what I think of, right? Oh, everything's going bad, and now what's he saying? Our pets, are, our pets' heads are falling off? Like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, how do you get any lower? I'm serving Jesus, now I'm snake bitten, right? This was what Paul, Paul gave up everything. Paul could have asked for payment from the churches. He said, I don't even want to be paid. I'm going to work for my I'm going to work for myself. I'm going to be a tent maker. I'm going to work construction in order that I preach the gospel. So Paul's given up all these rights that he has. Paul's given up comfort. Paul's given up, I and mean, he could have a cushy life. He was one of the most educated men of his day. He was in line to work his way up in the Sanhedrin, possibly become the high priest someday. He was on his way up. He was, had upward uh, trajectory. He was upward mobile, and he gave it all up to be poor, to be a construction worker, and to preach the gospel and to plant churches. And he says right here, why do, why do I have such self-control? Why do I deny myself such um, blessings and such comforts? He says it right there in 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Look, 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 look. That I may earn its blessings. Is that what he says? No, no, no. What's he say? That I may share with them in its blessings. 
See, Paul is not teaching run so that you will be saved. Not just run, be the fastest, be the best. He's not saying work hard, have self-control so that you will be accepted by God. He's saying self-control is about sharing the gospel with other people. See, this clarifies what Paul's been teaching in the past few chapters and also what he's clarifying in the next few verses. I do it all for the gospel, not in order to earn or win its blessings. Therefore, he's not saying work hard, develop self-control so that God will save you and God will approve of you. No. The point is to share with others the blessings of the gospel. It's like Paul has tasted a vintage wine and his joy will not be complete until he shares it with somebody else. It's like Paul has found that new like secret, you know, this, this uh, new secret restaurant, this new one that pops up on the corner and it's just got phenomenal food. We used to have this place in Omaha. It was called um, La Bouvette, this little French restaurant that was just scribbles. You couldn't even read the menu and I'd just look at him and go, I guess that one. And whatever it was, even if it was looking back at me, it was good, right? I swear one time it smiled at me, but I ate it anyways. It was like you find that, that, that special restaurant, right? And, and nobody wants to find that special restaurant, eat it, just blow them away, and then not tell anybody about it, right? What are you going to do? You're going to check in. You're going to Facebook about it. You can put a little picture, take a picture of your food, put it on Instagram. You're going to let everybody know that this restaurant is phenomenal. See, we're human beings that our joy, our enjoyment of something isn't complete until we share that enjoyment with other people. So Paul's saying, I've tasted it and I've got to share it. I felt this and now I've got to share it. I've experienced the gospel and now I get the joy of sharing that gospel with others. So I'll sacrifice everything in order for them to taste what I've tasted, to see what I've seen, to experience the beauty that has ruptured in my soul. And in verse 27, Paul says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control Literally, what that says is, I pummel my body. Like, I beat my, he's not literally thinking, like, you know, flagell, like just, you know, beating himself, but he's thinking like a wrestler who I am going to dominate my flesh and I'm going to make it um, come under my control. So when I want to sprint, I can sprint, right? That's what working out's all about. When something's required of me, I can do it. If I need to pick something up, I can pick it up, right? It's, if we're not in shape, we got to pick something up. We look at it, we're like, oh, man. we got to get ourselves ready, like, right? But an athlete, something like that, he can pick it up. Paul says, I put my body into submission. I make it my slave so it will do what I want it to do. Why is he doing it? Why is he putting forth as much effort as a wrestler or a runner or a boxer? And he says right here, look in verse 27, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. See, Paul doesn't want to be DQ'd out of the game. He doesn't want his behavior to get in the way of the gospel message when he shares it with someone. See, God has made every single Christian a missionary. 
If you are a Christian, the question isn't if you are a missionary or not. It's are you a good missionary or a bad one? If your life doesn't match the gospel message that you proclaim or you say you believe, you have DQ'd yourself. You're disqualified. When you share the message, it won't even ring true to someone. It won't even make sense to them. See, Paul shows us here his reasoning for self-control. It's the same thing he's been saying all along. He doesn't want to get disqualified. He enjoys the blessings of the gospel so much that he wants to share them with others, and he doesn't want to be DQ'd out of that. He doesn't want to discredit the gospel of grace by his lifestyle. So discipline and self-mastery isn't in order to be saved, but to win others. First Timothy, Paul is writing to a young Christian man, a leader, and he says this. Paul tells a young minister, keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine and on your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. See, when we share the gospel with others, they don't just measure the message. They look at our lives before a person becomes, listen to this, before a person becomes a believer, oftentimes they need to see what their lives will look like once that happens. So they look to us. They look at our lives and they say, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it would look like if I was a Christian. Now for most people, I can't do that very well. Because everybody, they look at me and they go, oh, well, he's a preacher. I can't do that. He's a preacher, right? So they discredit me right away. But when, when, a, when an artist comes into a church and he, and he finds art done by Christians and art done not just with a Jesus tag on it and a fish on the guitar, but art done really well for the sake of the gospel, that artist can go, oh, that's what I would look like if I was a Christian. Or a businessman or woman comes in and they see they see economists and they see, you know, all kind of managers and they see all kind of CEOs and all kind of people living out their Christian values in a way that's normal, but with gospel implications, they can go, oh, that's what I would look like. So my iPad doesn't have to have a Jesus fish on the outside when I go to a business meeting. I don't have to have scripture pop up as my ringtone or something, right? Yep, I'm one of those weird ones, Right? Oh, I really want to be weird like you. Can't wait till that happens. <laughs> See, they, before a person comes to faith, they look at your life and they say, that's what it would look like if I was a Christian. Stay-at-home moms, doctors, no matter what profession. What does it look like to be a Christian and in that profession? So the Bible teaches here, that self-control isn't to be accepted by God. I know I'm beating this horse here. It's not to be accepted by God. It's to have a life that matches our message of grace so that we can be better missionaries to our neighbors and our coworkers and our children. Listen, people who use self-control to be accepted by God they're religious people. Many of them, many of you thought that's what church people were, or maybe it is what church people are, thought that what, that's what Christianity looked like. And these people are radically insecure. 
If you ever point out anything, like, you know what? That was kind of offensive, what you said. <gasps> you must have misunderstood me. I was not. And they just backpedal, and they get defensive, and they got to tell you why what you saw wasn't actually what you saw, and what they said wasn't actually what they said, and that's not my heart, and I didn't mean it. They're so insecure. They're so self-protective. Why? Because if they look bad in the eyes of others, or they look bad in the eyes of God, then all of a sudden their standing with God is in question. See, they think they're running to win. They think they're the fastest. So if I'm not the best, if I'm not the the best behaved or have the most scripture memorized or have the, I was going to say coolest Christian t-shirt, but that doesn't exist. If if I'm not wearing my Christian t-shirt, my salvation is somehow in question. Now, if you ask them that, they will never see that. They don't understand that their salvation, they think their salvation's in question. But it is, by the, you can see how defensive they get. Paul shows us what a life lived swimming in the gospel looks like. He's free. He's free enough to be the slave of all. He's free enough to say, I'm the worst of the worst. I'm the chief among sinners. He's free to do that. See, but if you're trying to get God's approval through your self-control, you're radically insecure. You're always wondering, am I doing enough? Am I running fast enough? Am I moral enough? You know, did that outburst of anger just discredit me? Did God just boot me off his team for that one? We've already seen now, Christianity isn't like that. Christianity is radically different from other religions. And the fact that self-control isn't to gain God's approval, but listen, it's also different in how a person goes about getting or goes about attaining self-control. How do you get self-control? How do you develop self-control? Most people would say, well, you work hard and you exert all your willpower and you develop self-control. Now listen, the Bible says the exact opposite. Greek ways of thinking, coming down from the the philosophers, that's kind of the mind is over everything else. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. The heart is over everything. The key isn't your willpower, it's your heart, okay? So how do you develop self-control? It's through the heart. Now listen, nobody has said this better than Thomas Chalmers. I know you're all reading Thomas Chalmers on a daily basis. He was a 19th century Scottish minister. He was a professor professor of theology. He was a political economist and a leader of the Church of Scotland. And he preached this message called the, I love, they used to name sermons great, right? Every week they're like, Justin, what's the name of your sermon? I'm like, make one up. I don't know. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Is that a good title? Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in this sermon, Chalmers says this, the reason you do what you do is because your heart desires, your heart wants it. Listen, The only way for you to overpower one desire is for another desire for something better to take its place, okay? So he's he's saying, you don't get, you don't change because you get self-control and you use your willpower. You get, okay, let me do this. I used to eat oatmeal cream pies by the box, okay? The only reason I stopped eating oatmeal cream pies, other than the fact my wife stopped buying them, the only reason... I stopped eating oatmeal cream pies is because I had a desire for a healthier lifestyle. 
Actually, I had a desire to uh, be able to work out better and faster and, and do better, right? So my heart wanted to win in a competitive in competition more than I wanted to eat the deliciousness of oatmeal cream pies, okay? So I did not stop eating oatmeal cream pies because one day I just said, that's it, I've had enough. I'm going cold turkey from this day on. No, I said, I want to win really badly. And this is getting in the way of me winning. So the desire to win was higher than the desire for oatmeal cream pies. Listen, this is why in Proverbs chapter four, it says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. See, we are controlled absolutely by the desires of our heart. What our heart finds most fascinating, that's what we will choose every time. What your heart finds most fascinating, that's what you will choose every time. Listen, if you're fascinated by pornography, your, your willpower can't control you. You can't stop looking at it because your heart is fascinated by it. Paul is now illustrating that for us here. He says, why does a wrestler, if you've been around wrestlers, right? I wrestled in high school and college, so I love this illustration. Why do wrestlers starve themselves? Why do they go through grueling workouts day after day, month after month? For the wreath, for the gold medal, for the podium. See, a wrestler's heart would rather have a gold medal and the power that comes with that than food, sleep, or personal comfort. The gold medal. Winning is the fascination of his heart. See, the wrestler, people just, people don't get this. The wrestler does not wake himself up uh, 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 and go, don't hit the snooze button. Don't hit the snooze button. You know you shouldn't hit the snooze button. That doesn't even go through the wrestler's mind. It doesn't even go through his mind. The fascination, he wakes up and the fascination of his heart is right there. The fascination of his heart, the gold medal, it pulls him out of bed with ease. It's easy to wake up because if I sleep, I'm going to lose. That's what he thinks. If I sleep, I won't get the gold medal. If I sleep, I won't get the power and the podium. See? So his heart's desire pulls him out of bed. Makes getting out of bed easy. Parents, I want you to think about this. If your kid, well, maybe I should do this, parents. If your kid or a 30-year-old sleeps until noon in your basement every day, okay? You might be moderately concerned that he has a self-control problem. Right? He has a laziness. He or she has a laziness problem. That is, it's appropriate to be concerned about that, right? You have to drag them out of bed to get them to school. You have to pry the remote control out of their hands in the video games. Like it's, you're, you're thinking in your head, I, I hope no, nobody's going to marry this guy, right? I, would, I don't trust giving this guy to anybody. Right? I don't think he can provide for anybody. He has no self-control. She has no self-control. You're concerned about it. Now listen, how do you, as a parent, even with young children, how do you parent a child in such a way that you help them develop self-control? Here's two common ways to do it. Here's two common ways to do it. One, we either, well, let's just do these both. We'll combine them. We either put them in sports or we make them get a job. Those are two ways, Right? Now, these kids, we all know this, parents. Now, these kids are met with a choice. Now, they're met with a choice. 
What do they love more? Do they love money and career success more than laziness? Or if they're in sports, do they love athletic success and scholarships more than extra sleep? See, they're met with a choice. What do I love more, winning or sleeping? Success or mama's basement for the rest of my life? What do I love more? Now, if their heart, and it's not all universal, some go sleep, actually. But if they choose, I would rather be successful. I would rather be an athlete. I'd rather be accomplished. I'd rather have career success. Now listen, this is what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. If their heart chooses that, if their heart wants success, that will give them, listen, that will give them self-control over their laziness. But listen, this is what you see all the time. What happens when that little kid who learned not to be lazy through athletic competition, and now he's got self-control, he can wake himself up in the morning, he can go to practice, and he can work hard. What happens when that little bugger loses a wrestling match? What happens when he loses a match? Typically, meltdown happens. Bawling, screaming, anger, fits. Okay, what happens when that person who chose career success over laziness, what happens when somebody gets in the way of their career success? They lose their temper. Listen, parents, this is what I'm saying. Many parents go, their kid comes up, let's just say this, athletic, I'm gonna use the athletic illustration. Find out your kid's taking steroids. I didn't raise a, I didn't raise a drug user. I didn't raise a kid like this. Actually, you did. Actually, you did. Because you conquered their laziness with the promise of athletic success. So now athletic success is the source of their identity. Athletic success is the fascination of their heart. So now when the choice comes to either get ahead, you get beat, and you don't want to get beat, so now I can either cheat and win, or I could not cheat and lose. Well, I want to win. So now they cheat. Now they steal. Now they use drugs. See, why? Because in the very beginning, their own pride, you used their pride as the fascination of their heart to motivate them out of laziness. Do you see that? This is why people can be really lazy and they can get a job and they can get some material success and then somebody gets in the way of their material success and they find themselves fudging numbers. How do you get there? Because career success is the fascination of your heart. So what is that? Do you you realize what happens there? Look, you used their pride to get self-control over laziness, but that self-control self-destructed in other areas of their life. This is why you see wrestlers, and I'm going to tell you, I think wrestlers are the most disciplined people on the planet, right? They have to control everything they eat. They have to work out harder than just than anybody. And you could see these people just absolutely in control, and then they get beat on a wrestling match, and you can watch the most built athletic specimen weep like a child. 
over losing a match. They just lose their self-control. Throw it out the window. Why? Because their own success and pride was the fascination of their heart. So that can only get you so far. I believe when we parent like that, we successfully parented them, in the words of the old adage, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Wow, you're not lazy anymore. But you're arrogant. You're not lazy anymore, but you're despondent when things don't go what your way. When you get passed over for the promotion, you're despondent. You feel like killing yourself. But they're not sleeping in anymore. Now, if you were with us here about a year ago, about this time last year, you remember that we had a superb example of this from the book of Genesis and chapter 29. It was the story of this guy named Jacob and Rachel. And Jacob was a really interesting man. He was in the line of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. He was a mama's boy. He uh, stayed at home in the house while his brother and father went out hunting and did the chores. He liked to cook. Uh, so, but he didn't like work. Okay? He didn't like work. He didn't like smelling like outdoors. He didn't like any of that stuff. He wanted to be there with mama. But he was also a crooked dude. His name literally means, Jacob means deceiver. It means schemer. Okay? And he tricked his brother and his father so badly that he was forced to run away. And he ended up at his uncle Laban's house. Now, Jacob, a guy who had never worked a hard day's labor in his life, he thought, all right, I'm at uncle's house. Uncle's pretty wealthy. I'm just going to chill. I'm going to mooch off of Uncle Laban, and I'm going to live my life in ease, away from my father. But Laban, come to find out, was actually worse than Jacob, more of a deceiver than Jacob. And Laban was a money-hungry, opportunistic, godless man, and he outsmarted Jacob. Jacob had never been outsmarted before, and then Laban got the upper hand on him. Now, one day, after Jacob had been there for a month, uh, Laban comes up to him and goes, hey, you've been here for a month. You need to get to work around here. You need to, you need to work, but uh, I don't want you to work for free or just work for, your, you know, work for the roof over your head. You name your price. Now, if you're in business, you know, in, anytime you have a business deal, whoever speaks first loses, right? If you're negotiating a car and whoever's going to throw the number out there first, that person's going to lose, right? Because maybe I was thinking I'd get 6000 6, for that car, and he's going to name 5000 I'm like, oh, yeah, I got it. Hook, line, and sinker. Well, Laban says, Laban says to Jacob, name your price. What do you want to work for? And Jacob, what does Jacob say? Jacob says, oh, I got something. <laughs> I got something. I seen this pretty young thing in the yard a little bit ago. Her name was Rachel. And Jacob says, I will work for the next seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Laban's like, I got him. See, Laban had two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And Jacob was absolutely smitten with Rachel, the younger of the two. He was head over heels in love with her. So when Laban says, name your price, Jacob says, Rachel, I want Rachel on a work for you for seven years to pay her bride price. 
Now, if you don't know, that's an exorbitant amount of money. Seven years of labor. I will give to you. It's just a ridiculous price. So that shows us something. Jacob wanted her and he wanted her bad. Jacob kind of had holes in his life. He was kind of an a godless man, and he, he knew he was kind of absent, and he always, and he said, if I get her, then I'll be somebody. See? If I get her, then I know I'm, I'm successful. I know I'm winning. You know what the next verse says? Listen to this. It says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And this is great. And he says, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He worked seven years, and those seven years felt like a few days. What changed in Jacob where he was a, a mooch, a, just a lazy, opportunistic, didn't want to leave the house, didn't want to work hard, wanted to mooch off a of father, wanted to mooch off an of uncle? What changed, la- what changed Jacob into a guy who could now get up every single day before dawn, work doing menial tasks, labor-intensive tasks for seven years, day in and day out, and then at the end of it to say, and it felt like a few days. Rachel. His love for comfort was pushed out by his love for Rachel. The expulsive power of a new affection. I used to love being lazy. Now I love Rachel. And Rachel gets me up every day. Rachel makes my heart beat fast. Rachel tells me I am somebody. That's the fascination of his heart. See, Jacob achieved self-control, not, first off, self-control over his laziness, not through his willpower, but through his heart. He changed the object that he loved. He used, he used to, he used to love comfort, but now he loved Rachel more, and that changed his behavior. Self-control was easy when Rachel was the object of his affection. But you know what happened? Laban, Oh, good old Uncle Laban tricked him. This is bad. This is just a bad, bad trick. And on his wedding night, you know, they would wear veils. They'd go off to the wedding tent. And on his wedding night, Laban switched daughters on him. And he thought he was marrying Rachel, the beautiful, shocking, stunning daughter And instead, he married Leah. And Leah was the ugly duckling, okay? Leah was not attractive. So he went to bed that night with Rachel, and he woke up with Leah. And Laban said, oh, well, we don't give the younger daughter before the older daughter. So he just doesn't even, he's just, he's okay with it. Yeah, I tricked you, gotcha. He's like, but I'll give you Rachel too if you work another seven years. See, Jacob agreed, but for the rest of Jacob's life, he hated Leah. 
In Jacob's eyes, Leah was always the one who came between him and his true love, the fascination of his heart. I can't even imagine Jacob's feeling when he rolled over that morning, right? <laughs> right? Like Rachel fought in the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down last night. See, his fascination, now listen, he hated Leah. He hated his other wife. It wasn't God's will for him to have two wives, but he did. So he hated his other wife. Hatred. So he, the love for Rachel, the desire for Rachel, the affection and the fascination for Rachel gave him self-control in one area of his life, but that self-control self-destructed in other areas of his life, and he hated his other wife. He hated Leah. Here's the big idea as I'm closing. Self-control comes through the fascinations of our heart. The object that our heart wants above all things will always direct our wills and our behavior. But there's only, here's the key, there's only one thing. There's only one thing that when we set our hearts on it will actually give us self-control in all things. Everything else will give us self-control in a portion or a partitioned part of our lives, but then that self-control will always self-destruct somewhere else. If your kid's success is the fascination of his heart, he'll have no reason not to cheat when the opportunity comes. If career success is the fascination of your heart, you'll have no reason not to overwork when the opportunity arises and blow off the family. You'll practice self-control and then you'll lose it with your family and you'll lose it with, in your morality. It's interesting, I don't know if you saw the, the biggest loser this last year, this, a few months ago. This woman comes into the, the ranch at 260 pounds, obese, unhealthy. She needed help. She lacked self-control. And through their plan and through their working out and through all their stuff, this woman achieved phenomenal self-control. And she was on her way to, she wanted to win the show. You could tell, and I'm going to say this, at the end of the show, looking back on it, we know that her, the fascination of her heart was not to get healthy. The fascination of her heart was not to honor, honor God or glorify God with her body. The fascination was to win $250,000. And how do we know this? Because for the first time in the history of the show, on, in the unveiling, everybody like gets so excited because they're about to see this transformation and they have a picture of them when they came to the ranch and they bust out of it and they're all looking good and they're all got makeup and they're all like 100 pounds lighter. And everybody's all excited for this girl because you can tell she's going to be pretty, you know, and she pops out of this thing and everybody goes, <gasps> and you see, the, you see the, the, the trainers go, and she went from 260 pounds to 105 at the finale. See, she had gained, she had mastered self-control in one area of her life, but then when self-control should be putting the brakes on it and go step off the treadmill, eat a cupcake, you're good now, you're healthy. When, see, when self-control needed to apply the brakes, all she was thinking of is $250,000. So if I have to starve myself to get there, I'll get there. So she popped through into the exact opposite of what the show wanted. She went from obese and unhealthy to anorexic and unhealthy. See, self-control, 
but it self-destructs because it's based on anything other than the one thing. There's only one thing that if you base your life on will give you self-control in all things. What is that one thing? Paul shows us in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Paul says it like this. All the runners run, but only one gets the gold. Now listen, preachers that preach this as a metaphor for salvation, do you hear this? All the runners run, but how many get the gold? One. One person gets the gold. Can you imagine if that was actually a metaphor for how we were to win or gain our salvation? Every single person on the face of the earth is running. Forrest Gump running. But only one wins. Only one wins. Good luck with that. That means look to your right. Look to your left. That's competition. Can you outrun them? Some of you are like, yes, I can. (laughs) You better be, if that's a metaphor for how we gain our salvation, you better be the fastest. It's going to take Usain Bolt genetics to get to heaven. Because we're not just competing against these, uh, you know, moderately overweight Americans, right? We've got Kenyans out there, right? I'm out of luck. We've got Usain Bolt that we got to outrun. We've got people that are practicing superb self-control that are incredibly disciplined, more disciplined than we will ever be. And if only one wins salvation, then we're all out of luck. That's the case. And I, I believe, listen, here's the deal. I believe it is the case. And I believe that that means we are all doomed, except. See, there, there is one person who has run with perfect form. There was one person who exerted perfect self-control in all things, never practicing self-control and then self-destructing his self-control, practiced self-control perfectly in all things. There is one person who has already ran and already won the race. And this is the beauty of the gospel that can fascinate your heart for all eternity and create in you an unshakable and complete self-control in all things. What do you mean, Justin? Listen, the Son of God Jesus Christ was that one runner and he ran the race the Father gave him with perfection. He is the lone winner. But after his clear and decisive victory, he places crowns on every other runner who puts their faith in him. So now we are running, but we aren't running to win our salvation. Jesus has already won our salvation for us. And therefore, we can never lose what he has won. Only in the gospel is there no fear. Is there no insecurity? I'm not measuring myself by the person next to me. I'm not going, I just got to outrun this guy. I got to be better than this guy. I don't need it. Christ has already won and crowned me with his righteousness. Our victories, our personal victories every day are won and lost. 
We win, we lose. We know that. Christ cannot. Christ cannot lose. We are running now, not to win, but because he has won. He has, he is victorious, and now we get to run in this race, sharing that victory with other people. Saying, come in and experience this. Come and experience what it means to be accepted and loved by a gracious heavenly father. Someone who ran for us and then crowns us with his righteousness. See, the gospel, if you center your life on this, it gives you self-control in all things. It gets you out of bed in the morning. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to glorify God. He won me. He won the race for me. So I'm going to honor him and glorify him with my life. It can push you up the ladder at work. But then when that promotion comes and they, yeah, but I want you to sacrifice your family. You got to come in six days a week or when that thing. But you know what? Here's the deal. You got to fudge these numbers just a little bit. See, you realize I didn't work myself here. I didn't earn myself. Christ made me. Christ brought me up here. So I'm not going to lay down my self-control for that. Like I, I'm free to give up my rights. I'm free to give up this promotion here because my identity is in Jesus Christ. I've already won in him. I can lose this victory here and be okay with losing because I've won the ultimate victory in Christ. Now listen, this is it as I close. I've been fascinated with this verse for the last few weeks especially. It's from a book of the Bible you've probably not read. Now, too many people get up early in the morning in their devotional time and go, man, I'm just really wanting to dig into Zephaniah today. Give me some of that good news from Zephaniah. But there's this verse. And Zephaniah, some of you, maybe you do like that. It's exactly what I did yesterday, Justin. You were wrong. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Zephaniah 3.17. Listen, listen to what it says. And I'm just going to say, there's no other religion on the earth that has a God like this. Listen to what it says. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. A mighty one who will save. A runner who's run. A runner who's run the race and won. A mighty one who will save. Now listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. To me, this is a father looking at his kids, smiling, excited. They run up to him, they put him on their lap. He will rejoice over you with gladness. A God who rejoices over us, who can't run, right? We trip up all the time. We can't perform very well. We can't have self-control very well. But listen to this. This is the, this is the best part. He will, you, he will quiet you with his love. He will quiet you. What does that mean? He stills our soul. All the other idols of our life, all the other things that want to be the fascination of our heart, he will quiet those. And listen to this. Listen to this. He will exult over you with loud singing. A God who sings over people like us. And yes, I know you. I know your thoughts. You don't think I do, but I do. I know your thoughts because I have them too. I know the wickedness. I know the bentness of your heart. I know how you fear people really getting to know you because if they knew you struggled with that, you wouldn't be accepted. People like that who put their faith in Christ get the crown of righteousness from Jesus Christ and God now saves them and sings over them. Right now, the God of the universe is singing over you. 
Not because of you, you've run the race well, but because Christ ran it for you. What kind of God do we serve that sings over his people? He exalts over us with loud singing. This is the God that calls us to worship him. This is the God who no matter what you've done in your past and what you're doing right now or plan to do in your future, this God forgives your sin, washes it clean, gives you a perfect record, wins for you, wins so that we're free to lose. Doesn't mean who, if I lose, doesn't mean I'm a loser. I'm in Christ. I've already won ultimately. I'm gonna pray. Father, you sing over us. You sing over us. You're pleased with us because of the work of Christ. We're not running to win your favor. We have your favor. You're singing over us. Our self-control isn't to gain your approval. We have your approval. You're singing over us. I thank you for this grace that's in the gospel. Only this kind of Truth can change us this deep, can be the one object, the one fascination of our heart that frees us to, be, to have self-control in every area of our life. I pray that you would help us believe it this morning. Give us the faith to believe it. Give us the tenacity of faith to cling to it. When other things try to push their way into the, the chief place in our heart. And Father, for those who are outside of Christ today, would they see the beauty of the gospel would they embrace you by faith tonight? Would they do that? And for those Christians in this room who will come to the table, may you fill us with your grace. May we take it in to our taste buds and be reminded physically that our Father has forgiven our sins, that he's won our race, and he's at the finish line now singing over us. May that become a reality to our heart. To do all these things for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.